As the season winds down, some plot lines are wrapping up, others are already wrapped up, and others have quite a lot still to come. As with any season of Game of Thrones, many characters have died, but unlike past seasons, this has been balanced out by the return of many characters, some of whom were killed off almost as soon as they returned. But others may have huge roles to play, and part of the fun is guessing who, and what, and why, and when. The same is true for major plot lines, not just characters. Some have ended, others have begun, and others are merging together to create big mega double or triple sized plots. Others are ending and we have no idea what's coming next, really up in the air in some cases. With only two episodes left this season, we've got a lot of questions. Let's see if we can't shed some light on as much of this as possible, and maybe we'll figure out a few things together. So welcome back, everybody. It's week eight. History of Westeros and Radio Westeros team-up continues. Hey, guys, how you doing? I'm doing good, Aziz. Really glad to be back. Good to be here. Yeah, right on. So, and I don't mean when I say together, of course I'm talking about Radio Westeros and myself, but I also mean all of you. This is always a community effort, and I cannot say it enough that your emails fuel the fire. You catch things we miss. You ask questions that make us think about new things. It's a really a reciprocal relationship, and that's the spirit of community right there in a nutshell. So this is a lot of fun going through Game of Thrones Season 6 with everybody, and I'm really excited for the finale, and I'm really excited to talk about this episode as well. A quick update, a couple of quick updates, really. The Winds of Winter spoiler chapter that was released at Balticon that we've talked about a bit here and there, we've been working on that a lot. Um, hopefully we're going to have it out before the end of the season. And I know we promised to have a Song of Ice and Fire content during the TV season, and we had we were close on a few things, but this new Winds of Winter chapter really made us drop everything and start something new. So I may end up breaking my promise to put out something a Song of Ice and Fire oriented during the TV season because of that. But rest assured, it won't be long after the season that we get it out, and we might get it out before the end of the season. We've got, there's still a couple weeks left, and we're getting pretty close, but it's a big chapter with a lot of important things. And you know how it is. We don't rush. We don't want to miss things. We don't want to put out an inferior product. So we're taking, making uh, every effort to make sure we get it all in there. It's really turning into multiple episodes. In fact, we were planning a Euron episode too, and that just changed everything because we got so much more information on him. So anyway, moving on from that though, we're going to do a Q&A uh, a week from tomorrow, as in a, Thursday the 23rd at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Radio Westeros will be there with me, and we might even have a Shea back for that. So we'll see. That'll be a lot of fun. We're going to take questions after this next episode regarding that next episode, as well as what's to come in episode 10, which will be the longest episode of Game of Thrones of all time, 69 minutes. Next week's episode will be 60 minutes, so we're almost getting an episode and a half between these two episodes. So even there's only two left, there's still quite a bit to come. Of course, episode 10 always has huge moments. Uh historically speaking anyway. So I hope you can join us for that Q&A, whether live or not. You can certainly catch it afterwards. They will be posted once we get it edited and all that. And a couple other points of business before we get started. Shout out for the dragon Mazalakartho, the green and white northern dragon, ridden by Lord Mark Joseph, the snow in Winterfell. Of course, this dragon is too small to ride as of yet, but growing quickly. Also a shout out for our new first sword, Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, a brand new History of Westeros first sword 
helping us out with a pledge on Patreon and getting a shout out in return. So without any further ado, though, let's get into the material. We'll start with what was pretty widely received as a disappointing ending to the Bravos Aria plotline. And you know, you know me, you know us, we tend to be pretty positive. We tend to look for good things to say. And honestly, this was just disappointing. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it too much. We're not going to linger on it. We're not going to sit here and complain about it. But it's just, it got us thinking about all these conspiracies because we just could not figure out what was going on. None of the conspiracies were, were right. Everything was just pretty straightforward. Yoke Boy called it. I was totally wrong. I was, I was among those thinking that Arya wasn't Arya. Look at all these things. Why doesn't she have Needle? None of that mattered. It didn't matter at all. But we had good reason for, for suspecting something was up because, frankly, her stab wound is just not a believable thing to survive like that. It's beyond what they've done in the past as for, you know, a wound you can survive. It's just well beyond that. We even had a surgeon comment on the episode, on our show-only episode. He said, nah, not going to happen. You could survive that with modern surgery. But you're not going to survive having your intestines pierced in, without magic or something supernatural in the setting of, well, I was about to say the setting of Westeros. Technically, that's Essos. So, anyway, what do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I think I, I agree with that. Um, found that very puzzling. Uh, I think it was interesting, <laughs> after all the theorizing that went on in the week between the episodes that we ended up right back where a few, uh, quite a few people after the end of episode six thought we were going to end up when they showed Arya in the dark with needle. Uh, we were with people, um, who said, Oh, she, she's in the dark. She's going to be the blind girl. So it seemed like it would be fairly straightforward. And then we got all this sort of strange stuff in the middle. Yeah. Um, Chase scene. Yeah. So, you know, having the blind girl finally beat her teacher in the end as as kind of an ending is probably about the best that we can say about the whole sequence that <laughs> spanned three episodes. Yeah, right. And it, it's funny how people are making fun of how much the waif was like the Terminator. Should we call it a waifinator? Robert Waifrick? Uh, Arnold Waifinator? I mean, it's universal that is so many people picked up on that i wonder if they did the meaning the, the people filming it did they ever occur to them like this sir is a lot like terminator and in a sense you know terminator you know faceless men there's you know, both kill a good at killing right but she's not even good at killing <laughs> she just totally mucked it up she just <laughs> she jumps off the roof with you know, when she could have just taken a few more steps and been, you know, sneaky instead of jumping, you know, 20 feet away from her. It's just, yeah, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't want to over-complain, but I just, I just didn't like it. What about you, Yokoi? Yeah, some people have wondered, uh, perhaps in an attempt to lessen that feeling of bad writing that a lot of us are feeling at the moment, if I had actually let the waif attack her in episode seven and it kind of went a bit wrong... Um, and also remembering her very strange lackadaisical attitude when buying her boat ticket. Could this have been Aya's plot all along? Well, episode director Mark Mylod stepped in to disagree, saying that in his, his opinion, and quote, the character has made her decision to leave the city and really makes a mistake. She lets her guard down. We forget how young this kid is and she makes a mistake. 
having booked passage with the captain, she has a moment of reverie where she's looking over Bravos and particularly looking forward to making a move towards home and a new adventure. She's not going to be this assassin and she lets a guard down and nearly pays for it with her life. So that's what the director says. And, you know, with that in mind, I, I think, as you both have uh, alluded to, that it, it's kind of really difficult to justify the weakness of this whole sequence from last week running into this week. Yeah, and it's too bad because it's not only just this one scene. It kind of, because it's the end of the Bravos plot for her, it just... Well, this is the sum of it. We have we're left with this. We're lo looking back at everything that happened in this entire Arya plotline, and it kind of casts a shadow over everything. It makes the whole thing, you know. Uh, some people are calling it a complete waste of time. I wouldn't go that far. Arya is a much different character than she was when she left Westeros. She is far more capable, far more skilled. She still, got some naivete, but she's less naive than she was, especially considering her age. And there were other good things. The choreography was pretty good, even though maybe some of it was a little unnecessary. The falling down the stairs was pretty cool. Again, kind of unnecessary maybe, but it was well done. And Lady Crane's acting at the beginning of the episode was fantastic. And there might be some takeaways from her chain, or from the change in that scene. Uh, I think Lady Crane was my favorite part of this, this segment. Uh, her acting was superb, both in the play, which was very Shakespearean and, you know, an, an actress within an, within a role was, was really wonderful. But as the actress playing Lady Crane outside of the play was also good. Uh, there was a nice touch that as she exited the stage, they played the Reigns of Castamere for a second. Uh, I thought that was pretty mm, cool. That that, nice. that song yeah. actually came up quite a few times in the episode. Um, yeah. That was the first one. I liked her interaction with Arya, uh, which was almost motherly, you know, something Arya's obviously been missing. Uh, when she said to Arya, trust me, as she gave her the uh, milk of the poppy, it, it kind of brought a tear to my eye because trusting is something that comes very difficult to Arya. So um, to me, that was absolutely the highlight of the Bravos, you know, Arya with Lady Crane. So. Right on. I have a quick, I wonder, do you guys wonder if that's the, since Cersei, Lena Headey isn't using the wig anymore, that might be the exact same Cersei, yeah. the one that Lena wore. <laughs> it could be the exact one. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> it really could be. Yeah. <laughs> Why make another wig? They got the exact same, it's like Cersei, this, she's supposed no, to be Cersei, good. use yeah, the same so. wig. So, Yoko, what about you? Do you have any more to say on this? Yeah, I, I really liked Lady Crane too. It was really good to see her taking Arya's advice on the, you know, in play on Cersei's reaction to Tommen's death. It clearly enhanced the role in universe and the crowd seemed to be touched by it and they really reacted, didn't they? And to me, it shows how Arya has an adult understanding of violence and revenge given everything she's been through and it came through in this advice that she gave about the play. Uh, like Lady Gwyn says, Lady Crane looks after Aya in a somewhat, uh, as somewhat of a mother figure, I think. And I couldn't help thinking of Catelyn and how long it's been since Aya had some mothering. And this can only have increased Aya's urges for home. I also noticed uh, Lady Crane says to Aya that she should join the play as an actress. 
because they're an actress short because um Bianca left obviously and I realized that if I did go with them she'd be playing the role of Sansa which I thought was an interesting little point there yeah that's true um that would be really neat and you wonder what that would mean to her if she's playing the role of her sister if that would make her yearn for home even more yeah that's pretty cool so eh. Lady Crane also mentions Pentos as where the troop is going to next. So if she does join the troop, she would be going to Pentos, which doesn't really main, mean much to us as, as far as possibilities. Maybe Varus is going to pass through Pentos. Maybe you know, that's where Illyrio's manse is. I don't really see what that could lead us to, but it's interesting to consider the possibilities. It could be where she's going next en route to Westeros. Uh, and, of course, there's so many possibilities for where she's going to go. We talked about a lot of different options. Lady Gwen, do you have any thoughts on where she might go? My main thought is that she's, however she gets there, whether she stops off in another associate city on the way, is that she's probably going to go to the Riverlands, where she started from. Um, she's got to continue that list. Walder Frey uh, is probably the easiest target she's got left, <laughs> seeing as how Cersei in the mountain or... Um, well, they're in King's Landing. That'd be more difficult. So, <laughs> go I think she's going for Wilder Frey. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> and it'd be interesting if she goes after, does end up being able to go after Cersei. Though there's plenty of reasons to think Cersei is going to dig her own grave before <laughs> this, before Arya gets a chance to lay her hands on her in any way or her sword on her, <laughs> however it may be. But it does present some interesting conflict that she's actually maybe learned a little bit of about Cersei and maybe understands her a little bit and, and maybe wouldn't be so violent towards her. Maybe she, you know, there'd be a little understanding there. I don't know. It's tough to say. We have to see if Arya goes back to her list. That's That'll be interesting if she starts naming her names again. That will, that will be really, really telling. And then there's this interesting mention of West of Westeros talking about going... That was very odd. It was neat. I'm not in a bad way odd, but like, huh, what's going on there? What, do you guys have any thoughts on this? I thought maybe it was... Maybe her complete ending, like when the whole thing is done, she sails wet. I mean, it seems kind of odd, but it's maybe a nod to that possibility. Maybe that's what George told the showrunners Arya's going to do. Mm -hmm. eh, yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Uh, I think that could be possible. What I thought of when they said that was, um, I wonder if it was a nod to King Brandon Stark, the shipwright, who famously disappeared across the Sunset Sea. Uh, so I wondered if there just was just some hint, like you said, maybe George told them she's going to take after her famous ancestor and just sail into the sunset. <laughs> it could also just be the mundane explanation that it was a, you know, a throwaway line kind of thing that they they writ off the cuff. Yeah, you could we could be reading too much into it for sure. That certainly wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we got to do. We got to we got to turn over these rocks and see if there's anything there. Of course, it's funny because we turn over the rock and then we have to wait a while to see what's actually under it. <laughs> we don't get instant gratification. So as far as Arya's arc as a whole, this might be one of our best opportunities to talk about it as a whole because it's over. You know, she's moving on to whatever's next. Returning to Westeros is the only thing we could say for sure. But do you guys have any thoughts on the sum of this Bravos plot? Like what her experience has taught her, what it's going to mean for her in the future, how it's changed her, anything like that? Or is it just kind of a wait and see thing? It was, it was it, like, like we said, it was the whole Bravos arc 
you know, with the addition of the last couple of weeks, now you look back on it, has definitely feels somewhat pointless, I think. I, I really hoped I would take more away from it. For example, I wondered if uh, Jacken could have granted her the ability to change her face at will so she could have gone back to Westeros with a neat little trick that she'd learned and actually taken something. At the moment, she seems to be a slightly better fighter, can fight in the dark. But, you know, there's a lot of people complaining that the Bravos two-season storyline seems a little bit pointless, and it's kind of hard to argue against it. Yeah. What about you, Lady Gwen? Do you have, do you have any different thoughts, or is that kind of how you feel too? Oh, kind of. I mean, I think clearly, like you said, her she developed as a person there um, she she got older she matured she's less naive and and she's a better fighter and all that stuff so she gained some skills but um probably not as many skills as watchers had hoped she would so i guess it remains to be seen in some on some level what she really did take away from there because that could be something that we see in a different light when she gets back to westeros yeah so We'll have, we're going to talk about all, most of, well, not all, maybe most of the plot lines at the end of this episode in terms of have we seen the last of that, this plot line for the season. That's going to be rolled up into our post-credits trailer discussion because obviously we're going to have some insight on which characters have a little more of the season and which don't based on who's in the trailers or not. So that would be spoilery to say whether that applies to Arya or not. So we'll save that chatter till the end of the episode. So for now, let us go ahead and move onward. Let's talk about the Hound. Speaking of a character that's returned, um, seemingly from death. And I think this, this uh, I'm pretty happy with what they did here overall. It was a little rushed, but that's really par for the course. And you can't blame them too much for rushing things. They have so much to cover and very little time to do it. A picture is worth a thousand words, but... You know, <laughs> still, <laughs> the Song of Ice and Fire has many thousands of words to represent. As our own Lord Gregor the Toasty of the Breadfort points out, Sandor had an axe to grind with the Brotherhood. <laughs> That's a pun worthy. I had to bring that one up. That was, I can't, how did I not think of that pun? Anyway, see what I'm talking about? Community effort. See what I missed the opportunity to make a great pun. You know, one of our one of our great watchers comes in and, and catches my mistake there. <laughs> but so the storytelling worries that we all had about this were pretty well addressed. We were like, "Why is the Brotherhood doing this? What the hell? It doesn't make sense." So they addressed that pretty well, I think. Uh, broken men versus Brotherhood without banners is a thing in the books, and it just they just changed it to. Some of the Brotherhood became Broken Men, which is not that different, I guess. Um, Lady Gwen, what do you think? Yeah, I think um, I definitely felt a little better. A lot of things I was worried about last week um, did get addressed here. Uh, I almost felt like after watching this episode on a couple storylines that it was probably better to look at the two as two parts of a whole. Yeah, um, yeah. And then judge, so... Um, but, you know, you mentioned last week that it's actually hinted in the books. Thoros is so disheartened that the Brotherhood have lost their way, and he's totally dismayed by Lem wearing the Hound's Helm. So, you know, it's it's not... They actually handled it probably in, in the best way that they could. Um, not that I ever think 
Lem book Lem will ever go this bad. <laughs> <laughs> we hope not. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so well, another thing we mentioned, I think last week, is man, are they good at hangins? <laughs> a lot of hangins <laughs> this season. <laughs> we've seen a lot of them. This one didn't disappoint. Um, there was one of several humorous moments in this episode um, when Sander took Lem's boots right off him before he was even done swinging. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Talking about how it's over sorry. in an instant, and it was not <laughs> over in an instant. <laughs> no, he's still kicking up there, and Sander yeah. was pulling his boots off. So. <laughs> now, the uh, interesting point, little side note here, the actor who played Lem, he did a reading of... Lem's famous line about Stoneheart. And you can find it on Twitter. It's about 18 seconds long. It's really good. It's, of course, it's short, like I said, but it's almost worth, if you're not on Twitter, it's worth joining just for that, arguably. It's really well done. It's too bad this actor had such a limited role because he clearly uh, would have pulled this one off well. But what are you going to do? No Stoneheart. That's that. Uh, so now, both religions. We've seen, this is interesting, we have both the R'hllor followers and... The, sept, uh, the worshippers of the Seven, telling Sandor the same thing about having a purpose, about it's not too late to do more harm than, or to do more harm than good. It's not too late to do more harm than, it's not too late to do more good than harm. <laughs> and well, it's not too late for either, let's be honest. Yeah, so, but going north, that's clearly, that seems to be clearly what's happening here, which is, well, <laughs> Clegane Bowl prices are Share prices are dropping rapidly, even more so than, well, not as much as Stoneheart prices. Those were already pretty low. Uh, that's, uh, that idea was almost literally pissed on by Sandor when he's peeing in the river there as they went by. Yes. <laughs> that's kind of what I saw that, was, that as. Yes, it was my one glimmer of like, wait, Stoneheart, the water Stoneheart? That I was, yeah. oh. Instead you got a glimmer of Royer McCann's penis. So He's pissing know. on it, yeah, right. So. Okay, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> That was kind of funny. Um, yeah. So just one other thing about that actor who plays Lem, um, the morning after the episode, he tweeted, um, in addition to that great, uh, reading he did, he tweeted out that he feels our pain because he read the book scenes before he saw the script. Mm. So, oh, that was before the script. Okay. Yeah. You know, I didn't even realize you had written that here in our script and I, I kind of stole that line from you. That's okay. Well, that's all right. Cause it wasn't <laughs> awesome. It was, it was worth mentioning. It's worth mentioning twice. Go check out his little reading, which he obviously did on the set. He was on the set in, in costume and everything. So worth seeing, but, uh, I thought it was pretty cool that he gave a nod to book readers and indicated that he kind of felt maybe like Lem got gypped off in this crowd. So, <laughs> so Yokoi, you had some thought. You, you noticed something, a little undertone, a little hidden moment there, maybe. Yeah, Sandor said to the archer that was kind of threatening him, tougher girls than you've tried to kill me. And this is another piece of short and memorable dialogue from the Hound. Of course, he's referring to Brienne there, but he did say girls, plural. So he might just have been talking about Arya too being a, a tough little girl, which really put a smile on my face. Right on. So Beric, Thoros, the Hound, all heading north. Opportunity for great dialogue. Those guys have been, I've already shown the, you know, a glimmer of excellent banter, and I imagine that will continue. So that's, it's it might be up there with Cooper and Darnell or Arya and the Hound or one of those pairings. In this case, it'd be a, a tripling. <laughs> uh, 
Are they going to get there in time for these Battle of the Bastards? Are they going to be a part of the war, or the big battle that's coming up? Who knows? That's it's not clear. I'm kind of doubtful on that. I'm, I'm sort of thinking we won't see them again this season. But if we do, that'd be kind of cool if they come in and, and help out uh, on the side of the Starks, I would assume. It'd be weird for them to join the Boltons. <laughs> uh, so it's, it sets up some interesting possibilities for Sandor, as well as the other characters. But of course, Sandor is the one we most want to think about. The idea, maybe he kills a White Walker? Something like that. At least he could chopping dead bodies. He's certainly got a lot of practice chopping wood. By the way, in the behind the scenes, they show that Royer McCann is actually quite good at chopping wood. That was real wood chopping he was doing there. He's a qualified forester. Oh, yeah? How about true. that? It's true. Right on. That is cool. So, yeah, so he just owned that scene because that was real chopping. Uh, so, yeah, so maybe we'll see him chop some walk, Walking Dead. Maybe we'll see him chop a White Walker. And uh, watching her Sharam Marashi suggests Sandor could wield Heartsbane? I mean, Sam's not wielding that thing. And not many other people are capable of it. Sandor could do it, though. Big old guy, big old sword. I would. That would just be a fist-pumping awesome kind of moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you think, Yoke Boy? What do you think about, in general, about Sandor going north? Uh, Sandor going to north. When this was suggested in the show, I immediately thought of him meeting Sansa. There are those in the fandom who like to imagine future relations between Sandor and Sansa. And this possibility will no doubt delight them. They're called the Sand Sands, so a shout out to all of you. Um, I'm, I'm actually no shipper myself. But in the book, Sansa does think of Sandor very often after the Battle of Blackwater, including the infamous Unkiss, where she misremembers that Sandor had kissed her. The, the show can't convey Sansa's thoughts about Sandor because we lose the internal monologue. But, you know, it is there, so ho hopefully, for me, it's there in the show too. And all in all, if San Sandor does head north, the prospects of a reunion with him and Sansa is very intriguing, I think, and I really do hope they meet. I do too, and I think it's very likely. I really don't think Sandor's been brought back just to head north and die before he comes into conflict with, with anything. And it would be hard for him not to meet up with the other with the leaders of the effort to hold the North against the Walkers. And Sansa's going to be a part of that almost certainly. I really don't think she's dying anytime soon, if at all. So I think it's happening. I think they're going to be reunited, even if it's just a brief moment, even if it's just, uh, wow, hey, great to see you again. <laughs> I think it's happening. I think it's, I think we can count on it. So that's that's cool. That's very exciting. It won't it won't be this season. I really don't think it'll be this season, but it could be. I guess it's possible. But I think next season, far more likely, something to look forward to next year, probably around the beginning of the season, F1. I'm going to go ahead and make my prediction right there. Episode one next season, Sansa Sandor. Something. Something along those lines. Get hyped, right? Cool. <laughs> yeah, seriously, the sand sand shipping has been around for, I mean, the 90s? <laughs> maybe maybe not till the 2000s, because the Storm of Swords came out in the 2000s, and that's, you know, it started in A Clash of Kings, the idea, but I don't, I think it really took off more in Storm. I'm not, I'm not clear on that, but it's been around a long time, folks, a long time. Yeah, River Run, uh, I think this scene, mostly really good. Mixed feelings about a few things, but really, really good acting. 
I think it's interesting, again, to talk about characters that came back only to be killed off. You know, that kind of applies, well, that definitely applies to Blackfish. In Ed Muir's case, he came back just to get pushed off screen again. He's still in captivity. I don't think we'll be seeing him soon. There's some indication that his book arc will be different. Maybe we will see him in, like, the prologue, maybe even. But it's really neat that a guy who hasn't been in the show for so long comes back and just steals a scene so so well. Like, he was one of the best parts of this episode. But the first thing we see is Braun and Podrick. And this may have seemed just like a little, you know, Joshy moment where, you know, Braun's just kind of picking on Podrick. But I think there might have been a little foreshadowing here. I'm not sure. Talks about how Podrick has been training a lot, hour, two hours every day, which might come to matter. It might explain why he's a good fighter now, if he's going to be, you know, doing some fighting. Also, he says he's not dead yet, which I hope isn't foreshadowing. And he's used a dirty trick before. He's getting some dirty trick lessons from Braun, but he's already stabbed Mandon Moore in the back, so that was that's not really a dirty trick, but, you know, it's not uh, honor fighting. But it was uh, a good job saving Tyrion. We didn't want Tyrion to die. What, uh, Lady Gwen, what did you think of this uh, reunion? I love to see. I was singing, reunited. <laughs> uh, I thought this was great. I was one of my favorite scenes um, just because I like when they bring this comic relief in. Uh, I think it balances out things that can be, you know, very serious and dark. Um, so it's good to see this humor, uh, the jokes. I love the reference back to Pod's famous um, scene in the brothel. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> just look forward to seeing more, um, more brawn overall. So, yeah, it's good to have Bron. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting also that Bron's it may seem Bron's thoughts on Jamie and Brienne having sex may seem a little sophomore, but I think it's actually kind of important. It's delivered in a way that's like you know kind of crude, but the two of them being you know having feeling for each other that's no joke, and it's very sad that they have to be on opposite sides of the thing when they're basically. The only one, you know, they each in, in their own way are the only one that understands the other in the entire world. Like, I think maybe Brienne arguably understands or at least respects Jamie in ways that Cersei doesn't and never will and, won't, and doesn't seem to see or just doesn't value. And that's too bad because I don't think Jamie, you know, Jamie is in love with Cersei. I'm not gonna, that's, that's not, it's not so easy to get away from. But I think in a lot of ways, Brienne's a better match for him. I don't know. You know, I'm not a matchmaker. I'm no <laughs> master of relationships, but it seems like you know, having someone that respects you is better than someone that just, you know, you've been with since you were a kid. <laughs> Seems like a better basis for a relationship. Uh, and of course, there's all sorts of other issues with Jamie and Cersei having a relationship, but we don't need to get into that right now. Yokoi, what did you think? I thought that Jamie handing over Oathkeeper to Brienne for good was highly symbolic. There's a part of Brienne that's always with Jamie and a part of Jamie that's always with Brienne. And I think this gift of his sword for good really taps into that dynamic. These two have had a profound effect on each other in both book and show. Despite the show sidestepping on a Brienne-induced redemption arc for Jamie somewhat, Brienne represents the purity Jamie wishes he had. She lives the life of a true knight, which he might have been without the bad mistakes he's made and the poisonous influence of Cersei. 
I think this really does come across in the show, although perhaps not half as clearly as it does in the books. I think what Brienne and Jamie have between them can be described as a kind of romance, although not necessarily a kind of lustful yearning, but a romance born of honour, chivalry and a deep mutual respect that had to be earned and fought for both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, they really ended up handling this very well. Uh, Brienne shows that she believes in Jamie. She challenges him on a couple of points, but she believes in him as a knight and in his honor. She offers him a way to take Riverrun without bloodshed. And, you know, she's got this plan uh, where he can preserve his honor. Um, and even though she failed in her mission, Jamie was in the end able to achieve an almost bloodless surrender, which we will be discussing shortly. I'm sure. Yeah, he, you're right. Um, we next get the Brienne and the Blackfish before we get to the, <clears throat> the full surrender. And it's interesting, a lot of people have commented on how stoic Blackfish was throughout all this, but he does have this moment where he, his facade breaks when he reads the letter from Sansa and sees how similar she is to Catelyn. And that is just a big moment for him. And he does, it's not the only brick. He has, he does show other signs, at least one other sign of, of yeah. you know, this isn't just about holding out stubbornly. Right. He did, um, he paused visibly when Brienne told him that the whole story about how Jamie sent her out. He, he challenges her about the sword and she tells him the whole story about how he gave her the sword so that she could go and find uh, Catelyn's daughters as he promised Cat he would and she says he kept his word and you know you see him you see Blackfish kind of huh you yeah. could tell he was thinking well maybe I misjudged him after all <laughs> and that's what gets him to read the letter right. I mean, he wouldn't even look at it right. until then yeah and that's what leads to him so oh, she's like Sansa yeah mm-hmm. that or like Catelyn yeah it, it was pretty it was good because he is this tough stubborn old man who you know, basically just wants a noble death, like Jamie says. That's all he can hope for. And he's trying to set aside these feelings because it's not going to serve him well. You know, like, he basically, he knows that Edmure is doomed, or he thought Edmure was doomed, given the circumstances, given his awareness of the situation. And so he's basically got to just swallow how much that hurts and just accept that Edmure is dead, even though he's not technically dead yet. And that's just really hard, you know, setting aside your own family based on circumstances. So now we do come to Jamie and Edmure because Brienne, despite Brienne's efforts, it's not enough to get Blackfish to surrender. And yeah, this is possibly the best scene of the episode. A lot of people are saying so. I certainly would nominate it for being up there. And what's cool about it is they change some of the dialogue. And often when they change some of the dialogue from the book version, it's... You, you, we're wondering, why didn't they just use the book dialogue? It's better. Like with like with Septon Ray's speech. Septon Ray's speech was good, but the book speeches that they could have drawn on are just better, I think. You know, And I think most of us would agree with that. This, though, they changed some, some parts of the dialogue. They changed it well. It was as good as the book stuff. And in tone and detail, it was very similar, even though some of the wording was different. Do you guys, would you guys agree with that? Would you, you think the scene was, was particularly strong? Yes, I think it was. Um, you know, big shout out to Tobias Menzies and, of course, to um, Nikolai, Nikolai um, for their acting. They're just 
two stellar actors. They were really going at it there. Um, you know, the changes they made were to make this scene work in the given the other changes that around it, uh, but it came out to be very close to the books, and I didn't I didn't feel like there was any anything that I was missing. They they did a yeah. good job conveying Jamie trying to channel Tywin at the same time as he's really Jamie yeah. trying to do this thing in his own way. Just like in the books, Jamie doesn't actually intend on following through with that killing of Edmure's baby. But he knows that everyone that everyone else knows that he's the Kingslayer. He comes at this with honor. He's like, I want to make this a bloodless surrender. I promise your men they can leave unharmed. No one believes him. So he's like, okay, well, if they think I'm a bad guy, I'm going to use that. I'm going to threaten your baby, and they're going to believe it because they think I'm a bad guy. Deep down, because we've seen Jamie's thoughts in the books, he wouldn't do it. But it's a it's a bluff that no one's going to call. So it was a really smart move. And it, But it also, we have to remember that Jamie isn't really that guy. He's not going to do that. Yeah, the things we do for love. He even quotes his own self pushing Bran out the window. That Jamie is gone. The Jamie that pushed Bran out a window is gone. He's not, he's changed. Even though the show's redemption arc for Jamie isn't as thorough and satisfying as it is in the books, it's not completely forgotten. And this is a perfect example of why. And it also is a little sad because we know he's different. We know he is more honorable. We know he wouldn't kill this baby. But if everyone's going to believe that he's this monster, well, may as well make use of it. <laughs> you know, that's all he can do. There's also some interesting foreshadowing here. The the burning cities to ash, he says. He talks about what Cersei would do for her children. <laughs> burning cities to ash. Hmm. We'll be coming back to that a bit later in the episode uh, when we discuss wildfire and old rumors, etc. But there was another piece of foreshadowing here too, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, Blackfish's death. Yeah. Eminent foreshadowing, which you mentioned. He says he's... He tells Edmure he's an old man. All I can hope for is a good death. And yeah. really, isn't that how it worked out? He got himself mm. a good death. Yeah, and I kind of understand it. It's a little sad. It's a little disappointing. Uh, we all wanted... We all like Blackfish, I think. We all wanted him to do more. But, you know, from a show perspective, it kind of makes sense what they did. Uh, <clears throat> and there, here's where we really need to point out the huge differences in circumstances regarding Edmure and Blackfish from book to show. It seems very similar, but there are some huge differences. Uh, in the books, when Edgar surrenders River Run, he basically has an off-screen chat with Blackfish where they arrange for him to escape. So he's complicit in Blackfish's escape and almost certainly fills him in on Jamie's plan to murder his baby, which Blackfish would have to agree, like Edmure did, that this is a credible threat, even though we readers know it's not. So... Contrast that. So, in other words, Book Blackfish knows that there is still a concerted war effort happening. He knows the Brotherhood have infiltrated Riverrun. He knows that they've been hanging phrase. He knows that Lady Stoneheart is out there, or if he doesn't know that, he's going to find out soon. He knows a lot of things. Basically, the bottom line is the war effort is far from over. But here in the show, it is completely over from his perspective. He spends all this effort retaking Riverrun. Edward just gives it back up without telling him about the threat to his kid. Edmure Blackfish 
in the show doesn't know about this threat to the baby. That would probably change his mind at least a little because that's family. And that's not the same as his uncle or his ne nephew, rather, who has been forced to give up because he's been in Lannister hands so long. Killing a baby is a bit different than that. So <clears throat> also contrast to, to show Edmure orders Blackfish put in chains as a contrast to book Edmure helping Blackfish escape. I mean, this is a really, really different set of circumstances. So Lady Gwen, let's, let's hear your thoughts as well. Well, there was something very subtle um, that I noticed in, in you know, there's probably did too. When Edmure came through the gates, he saw the Blackfish down there on the first level. And then he went up to speak to the commander of the garrison, um, walking away, thus giving him that chance to escape. Uh, I think that was purposeful. Uh, he went up and, and he took his time before he said, find the Blackfish. Um, so I think there was a purposeful effort. It, while he couldn't convey the reasons, at least, okay, here, I'm going to give you a chance. Um, That's a good point. If you wanted him in irons, he would have put him. He could have just said, "There he is." Season. Right away. Yeah, right away. Mm -hmm. So That's a good point. Um, so you know, obviously, he chose not to do that. Um, he you know ended up giving himself up for Brienne, which is uh, something we can talk about in a second. But I remember, want to remember that you know in the books, the Blackfish's objective is his main objective is to protect Queen Jane. Uh, it's Rob's final order to him. And he's still upholding it in his parlay with Jamie. He says to Jamie, My king entrusted his queen to my keeping, and I swore to keep her safe. I will not hand her over to a fray noose. Uh, I suspect that continues to be his objective in the books, but without Jane Westerling or Rob's wife still living in the show, Blackfish doesn't have any purpose to, other than, you know, he provided the narrative reason to get Jamie out of King's Landing and into the Riverlands by holding out in this castle. And now he doesn't really have a show purpose any longer because his show purpose will be fulfilled by, or his purpose going forward will be fulfilled by Brienne. Yeah. And I've seen a few people hoping for um, Stonefish, Blackheart. I don't know what you want to call him. You know, they just take Stoneheart and make Blackfish into Stoneheart. I, I wouldn't hold out hope for that, folks. But it's a clever idea, I got to say. It did not occur to me, but I really don't think so. <laughs> uh, and so, like I said, I personally didn't like Blackfish dying. I'm not criticizing the show for doing it. I just like Blackfish and wanted to see him continue. I wanted to see him do stuff. But hey, let's be honest, you can't, it's hard to film like action scenes with with actors who are literally, you know, older. It's, it's not like, they probably can't film, you know, scenes that really look like great action. And yeah, it, it, I would have, it would have made sense either way. If he goes north with, if he'd left with Brienne and, and Podrick, that would have made sense too. But, it also makes sense that they decided to end his arc. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, we have some, the actor and the director, Clive Russell and Mark Mylod, have both weighed in on it. Uh, Mylod said he chose to go out um, with dignity, that this death was his choice. He, he didn't want to run again. Uh, Clive Russell said he gave himself up for Brienne, who he saw as a younger version of himself. Uh, told her, you'll serve Sansa better than I ever could. He's basically thinking I should have died at the Red Wedding when he says, I ran before and I won't run again. Um, also, I noticed there was a defeated look on his face when the garrison commander chose to obey Edmure's orders over his. And we should probably remember that a seasoned commander such as the Blackfish would know that once you've been overruled in that fashion by your men, this sort of a mutiny, he'd never be able to effectively lead these men again. So 
Uh-huh. That's true. All in all, I think he just saw that that was the end of his line, and it was really marvelous acting on his part. Yeah. And, and some people say, oh, he's more defiant than that. He would have continued to fight. And I say, well, you're not necessarily wrong, but choosing his own, the own terms of his death, staying to die at River Run, that's a form of defiance too. It's just, it's just a different, you know, avenue for being defiant. And I, he, like, like Jamie said, he wanted an honorable death. He, think about this. In story canon, the way news travels, the way rumor spreads, his example will live on, I think. Tully's, future generations of Tully's aren't going to hear that he f- threw away his life. You know, when he could have left to continue the fight. That's not what they're going to hear. No one's, people aren't going to be saying that. They're going to hear a distilled version of the story, which is Blackfish died fighting against overwhelming Lannister odds trying to keep the Tully, keep Rubber Run in the hands of the Tullys. That's the story that will be passed down. And people will invoke his name as evidence or as, you know, an ancestor with bravery, that kind of thing. I think, uh, and he, I think he knows that too. That's another thing that a seasoned commander would recognize is that this, he, he's an old man. He can't expect a lot in the future, but he can affect future generations to come by setting an example. And I think that's a pretty cool thing, even though it's not necessarily what we wanted. <laughs> Either way, if you like the actor Clive Russell, uh, watching her Ray H points out that the show Barbarians Rising on History is going to have him in it in some role along with some other Game of Thrones alums like Shireen and Barristan. So that's cool. Looking forward to that. <clears throat> so now, let us move on. I think that covers River Run and all that. We'll have maybe some more thoughts on it in the trailer talk. And unless you guys have anything more you want to say, we should move on. All right, cool. Let's talk about Marine, uh, Varus, and Tyrion. So, uh, yep, boy, why don't you break some of this down for us? Okay, Varys and Tyrion. Tyrion has let the Red Priests into Marine as a kind of temporary stopgap to cease the violence in the city. And it's quite an interesting tactic. I couldn't help but think of the parallel over at King's Landing where the Faith have taken hold and are now causing serious trouble there. Varys's caution in the scene reflects the danger of something similar perhaps happening in Marine, and at this stage it's really difficult to tell whether Relorists in Marine's storyline is going. Are they going to be trouble? Could they help Danny? You know, what is their purpose? I, I really can't figure it out. Yeah, it's a really it's, it's a perfect example of of a interesting possibly huge plot line that it's very hard to tell where it's going and it could it could play out a number of ways so that's a really good thing to point out Spe- speaking of where are things going where is Varus going on this secret mission he mentions ships he mentions the need for allies in Westeros you know if he goes back to King's Landing maybe he steals back his little birds or something I don't know um it's a lot of possibilities Dorn has been mentioned as a possibility. You know, he could, I guess he could go to the Reach, maybe. Uh, I would guess Dorn is more likely. The Veil is possible, but the Veil is the least, seems to be the least used of the Seven Kingdoms in terms of, you know, what's going on there. And all the key players have left the Veil for now. So it doesn't, that doesn't seem very likely. Iron Islands, I guess, is possible. They know, he knows they have ships. He doesn't, he's not aware of probably as, as much as Varus is, you know, on top of information, what's going on in Aaron Islands may have escaped his notice because of, well, it's fairly fresh. Uh, hard to say. 
There's also some crackpot here. I think it's worth mentioning. I'm not sure that it leads anywhere, but it's fun to think about. It's funny that Varus has never been seen with Danny. <laughs> he's, he left. He showed up right after she left, and he's leaving right after she comes back. And he leaves right before these ships show up. I don't think Varus is going to flip or is secretly working against Danny. But it's worth considering because he's working against her, or sort of working against her in the books. I mean, he flipped his plan. At first, Danny was a distraction as a smokescreen for young Griff slash Aegon VI. But when then she really hatches her dragons, they change their plan to have to make them marry. Because obviously you want to have the dragons on your side. So I, I just don't... But the, pr the problem with this theory... So it makes sense, rather, that Varus, they could adopt some sort of Varus changes sides thing to put in the show. Or have him work against Danny because he's upset at all the magic. You know, he doesn't like the Red Priest and all this. On, so on some level, it would make a certain sense. Uh, Varus is a master schemer, so this it's, it's wouldn't be like some super sneaky thing for the show to do. On the other hand, who the hell would he flip to? If he's going to switch sides, who? What side would he take? I, I just don't see it. Gendry. Gendry. <laughs> King Gendry. <laughs> okay, all of a sudden, now I am supporting this plan. Once you threw Gendry's name out there, I'm like, yeah, King Gendry, the rower. <laughs> <laughs> so... I don't know. So, do you guys think there's any chance that there's something sneaky going on here, or is it just is it just the way it looks? Is it just far? No, I think it's the way it looks. I think personally, I'd I'd like to see him go off to Dawn and kind of bring them back into the story. <laughs> as fearful as I am of more Dawn episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you there. Um, this is a side question. I wonder, you know, Varus and his whole attitude towards the supernatural and all this stuff. What's it gonna? What's he gonna do when he finds out about the White Walkers? When they're, you know, he realizes they're a real thing, and you know, this is this is serious. I wonder what that's gonna mean to him. I really do. I, I really don't know. I don't even really have a guess. Uh, I mean, it's not like he denies the existence of magic. He just hates it. So, yeah, it's hard but. to imagine what people who are so kind of relentlessly concrete, like Varus and Littlefinger and. What are they going to do with this information when they get it about, yeah. about the White Walkers? They're such a big part, like Littlefinger and Varys, of the whole Game of Thrones concept of intrigue has a huge role to play in the story. But when it's just humanity versus White Walkers, if that's what we're getting to, we might not be getting to, it might not be that simple. But if we are, how schemers, what place do they have? What, who, what is there to scheme? You can't scheme against the White Walkers. You know, you don't, there's... It's 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 harder to see what role they'll play going forward. So I wonder about that. Now, uh, moving on to another part of this of the Marine storyline, we have Tyrion, Grey Worm, and Masande. I think a lot of people are complaining about the scene. They thought it was a waste of time. They thought it was pointless. I would disagree. I think it's important. Tyrion's character is really important, and this shows how lonely he is. He's trying to make friends. He's trying to connect with other people. It's not happening. He talks about his how he would have a vineyard, a wine vineyard for all his friends, and then you stop to think, well, who are those friends? <laughs> it's just, just nobody. I mean, damn. I mean, Varus? Is that is that it? Braun? I mean, he hasn't seen Braun in forever. I mean, don't forget, show, show Tyrion and Jamie don't hate each other. Like book the book versions do, so there's that I guess. But really, <laughs> I so I thought the scene was great. What about you guys, um, Lady Gwen? What do you think? Well, 
you know, I, I thought it was amusing. I appreciated reflective Tyrion, like what you just said. Uh, I, I liked the interplay between um, Grey Worm and Missandei. Um, that was kind of cute. Uh, overall, though, it just felt like more filler to me. I'm, I get the point that, you know, and maybe it being filler was the point, actually. These characters are basically just sitting there waiting for something to happen uh, with really not much to do. Uh, that's that's their storyline, so I do get that, but we had so much of it this season, mm -hmm. it just got to feel a little bit drawn out. Fair point. Yeah. Yeah, what about you? I have to say that I didn't like this scene at all. Tyrion's Meereen arc has been extremely dull and disappointing this season. And for me, it's because of too many scenes like this. The, and the joke about the three men drinking wine is actually an old and well-worn joke here in England, originally told as an Englishman, Irishman, Scotchman joke. So D&D kind of stole that one, which for me was less than impressive you know as writers um overall i think there's there's been too much miranese filler this season which is a shame given peter dinklage's potential and in showing Tyrion's boredom they've actually made me pretty bored i have to say <laughs> fair enough fair enough so we're all we're kind of divided on that scene i think so far throughout this episode we've, we've largely agreed on all the scenes but here's our first disagreement Fair game. Uh, well, I, have to, I guess I, we, we probably would agree that this scene certainly did not end boringly. They're talking and all of a sudden, boom, a bunch of slaver ships show up. That's anything but boring. That's like, whoa, hey. All of a sudden, it makes sense that the slavers destroyed the ships earlier this season. We were wondering about that. It's like, why don't you want Danny to leave? Let her have her ships so she leaves. Now it makes sense. They're planning a naval assault. There's no ships to defend the city with, and they can just sit there and do the sea bombardment. That's what, but what they didn't think of, the slavers, is that there's Greyjoys nearby and uh, Volantis coming to ally with Danny, and there's Drogon and possibly the other dragons. So, in a sense, hey, it looks like we're getting at least some version of the Battle of Fire after all, which is pretty cool. It looked completely dead as an idea, but hey, we're getting something. And fire. Man, was there fire. Those fire catapults were cool. Uh, yeah, the ships flinging, that was just so out of nowhere and really neat, really visually very awesome. Seeing the pyramid get bombed like that. Pretty darn cool, I gotta say. That was nice. Uh, maybe not a lot to say about it, but it was really cool. <laughs> and we get the return of Danny, which... Not unexpected. We predicted in our trailer chat that the you know, they showed Tyrion looking up at the ceiling uh, as if something was happening above him. So we thought, yeah, dragons coming, either the dragons getting out or Daenerys returning. So that was we saw that coming. That was fairly predictable. So I guess the Kalasar is still on the march, which means maybe they'll show up for episode ten. Maybe not. I don't know if we'll see. Maybe we won't see Dario again. It's a big open question whether we'll see this Battle of Fire play out in episode ten or next season. That's I don't know where they're going to plan on leaving it. Maybe, uh, I don't Do you guys have any guesses there? Do you think we'll see it this season? Or do you think it's going to be like kind of a cliffhanger thing to start to kind of resolve the beginning yeah, of next season? I do. I think it's I probably be just like the books. It's going to, you know, you got the setup there and a, a lot of the elements that exist in the books are there. Uh, I don't see how they can do it in episode 10 because they have episode nine with this big battle in the north and then they have too many yeah. other storylines to wrap up in the final episode to really do justice yeah. I, I hope they don't 
do it. They just wait and do it in the next season. Yeah, the, what you're saying is is a very good point. They're going to spend a whole episode doing a battle in the north and then do this in just a scene or two mixed in with all these other scenes in episode 10. That would be a little unsatisfying. So I tend to agree this is, it seems more likely that they would give it a little more screen time than that. Pushing it to next season allows them to use the season 7 budget on it where they seems like they've already, you know, you can already see where they've put a lot of the money for this season. So yeah, so I, I'm def I definitely would prefer to see it next season because that does that would indicate you know from a meta perspective that they are able to put more effort and money into it. Uh, that said, we will have a few more comments on this plot line at the end of this episode. We may have some insight uh, from the trailers as to what may or may not happen. So you're going to want to stick with us for that if your curiosity is getting the best of you. Okay, any more thoughts on this? Do you guys maybe uh, looking forward to seeing Drogon roast a few ships, uh, <laughs> something like that? Or maybe we'll see some internal conflict. I think that's a very big possibility. This may be not just about the ships, it may be about what's happening inside. If you look at what Grey Worm said, he intends to hold the pyramid. He doesn't want to send the troops out. So we might see, you know, some sort of military action, fighting in the streets, fighting in the pyramid, something like that. A lot of potential there. Yeah, and there's also the Ironborn on their way. So the, I was wondering if there could be a hammer and anvil with the Ironborn and the Unsullied. That'd be really neat. Yeah, very, very exciting possibilities there. Lot to be hype about, but as we said, probably not for a year. <laughs> so hold on to that hype for now. Just, just be excited, but put it in a box to the side for now. <laughs> okay. So let us move on again. Let's take a mid-episode break for just a moment. We'll come back to talk about the explosive potential at King's Landing. Okay, King's Landing. The burning questions about King's Landing. I just can't stop with the puns, can I? Uh, the mountain that rides becomes the mountain that rips heads off. Oh boy, we've been waiting for this, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, we're big fans. Me and Aziz really want to see Robert Strong, or as he's known in the show, uh, Sir Gregor, you know, rip more heads off. But did you see the look of complete and utter satisfaction on Kyburn's face after he did that? He had that kind of I've made a monster smug look on his face, and I, I really loved it. Yeah, I, that was great. He was like exhilarated in the power of his creation. He was like, oh, yes, this is exactly... I and mean, it echoed our, you know, viewer, <laughs> our viewer attitudes, too. Just we wanted this... It's kind of brutal to want to see this, but we, <laughs> we've been anticipating this all season long, and it was like, yeah. It wasn't quite what we wanted. We wanted to see him take on all seven of those guys. But, hey, it was still pretty cool. Lancel living on. Uh, that was a little surprise. I, I really, I called. I thought Lancel would be dead, so I guess I was wrong there. I mean, I still think he's doomed, but it wasn't that episode. He's at least he's not that stupid to take on Gregor after seeing what he did to you know that red shirt. <laughs> I called that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that guy is definitely. He was my number one. Yeah, that last guy week. was. <laughs> Front front and center Faith Milton guy. You're going down. Yep, sure was. Ke so Lancel lived on. I also predicted that maybe Kevin would get it because of the domino effect of Lancel dying. If that was Cersei's fault, that would you know cause things to come to a head. But still, man, Kevin really just 
rubbing it in Cersei's face, kind of shaming her. And, you know, I don't know if that's Cersei's not the kind of person you want to do that kind of thing to. What do you think, York boy? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that we see Kevin standing up to Cersei. Those two are definitely adversaries now. And we can wonder if there will be perhaps be a stabbing like in the dance epilogue this season. Yes, I think we can wonder that. I wondered, uh, or I thought, the other thing that that scene highlighted with Kevin standing up to Cersei, isolating her, really. It highlighted something we mentioned last episode, which is Cersei's isolation. He sends her up to the gallery with the other ladies of the court, and they all kind of move way away. Uh, she's really quite a pariah at this point. Uh, her only supporters really seem to be. She's standing there with Kyburn and Robert, Robert Strong. They're right in her shadow the whole episode. So, uh, you know, even her uncle, her son, her family have really abandoned her. So, Yeah, the, the High Sparrow is really, really wielding a lot of power behind the throne. It just keeps increasing. I and mean, he's not even in this episode, but his, his fingers are all over all this. Um, real quick, speaking of power behind the throne, a, a shout out to Lord of the Chicken Song and Clucker behind the throne, James Saunders, who has sent a, oh, is always sending us good things to discuss, catching a few things for us here and there that we may have missed. Appreciate that. Appreciate your emails, James. Definitely worthy of a shout out. So this scene brings up a lot of book parallels, a lot of possible book parallels, a lot of things that we're very confident in, and a lot of things that we're questioning, we're not sure about. The, the trial by combat thing is one that, that's a bit puzzling. I think it really made sense for the show. In fact, we, it was one of the predictions that we made. I'm not sure where we made it, whether it was in this episode or a show-only episode. I think Sean predicted that as a possibility, uh, at the very least. We may have mentioned it elsewhere. I don't know. It's all a blur, the season, right? Mm. That's what happens when you make two episodes a week. You can't remember where you said things. Uh, so I'm guessing no. I'm guessing this won't happen in the books. The trial by combat will be banned. The circumstances are a lot different in the books. There's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences. The High Sparrow and Tommen do not have this kind of relationship in the books. That's It's not even close. They don't have meetings with each other. Tommen is just a kid. He's much younger. He's just He still plays with his kittens, and he loves to stamp things, and he hates beats. I mean, he's a kid. He's a, he's a little boy. This Tommen is a young man. It's a very different set of circumstances. So, And also, it's not... It doesn't seem to be necessary. The, the High Sparrow wouldn't need to prevent Cersei from this necessarily. I, I'm not sure. He also... He, but one thing that is similar is proposing seven judges. That has been settled or set stated in the books. And he even does it like, you know, his, his faithful attitude. He's, he, this, the High Sparrow in the book says he wants the seven judges to each represent the seven gods. So there'll be three women, there'll be a maid, a mother, a crone, and all this. It's, it's, very, it's very weird. <laughs> Not in the, like, why did George write it that way? It's just, man, religious fanatics can get strange sometimes. <laughs> Who's going to be the stranger? So, yeah, right? <laughs> Who is going to be the stranger? Uh, they need advice right. for that, but he's gone. Someone whose sex is a bit ambivalent and whose identity is a bit ambivalent. So a lot of he fits that pretty well. Kyburn would make a good stranger, wouldn't he? I wonder if they yeah, that's a good him. point. <laughs> Cersei would would certainly approve of having Kyburn as one of her judges, but <laughs> I don't see that happening. Um, now here's some some interesting under. There's a lot of this scene to unpack that that if you understand it properly, if you take all, everything into account, it might change your initial impressions. 
maybe you caught all this, maybe you didn't. There's a lot. The, the book plot is a bit confusing in some ways as to what exactly Cersei is charged with. And that gets more confusing when you consider that it's not quite the same in the show. If you don't quite understand it in the books, it makes it harder to understand in the show. They're both a little hard to understand. So let's clear that up as much as we can. First thing, though, I want to point out that Tommen, it seems like he's betraying his mother a bit. And that's it's, it's hard to see Cersei go through that, even though there's plenty of reasons to hate Cersei. Something I pointed out in the show-only episode is that King's Landing has really become Cersei's point of view. It used to be we see things from a lot of people's angles and perspectives, but really this is all about Cersei now. Everything is kind of filtered through her lens. This is her perspective that we're really seeing as much as it can be from a TV point of view. Uh, so it's important to note that it's Tommen seemingly betraying his mother, but he's found out by now, if not much sooner, that Cersei had something to do with Robert dying. And Tommen still thinks Robert is his father. That's really important to remember. So from a point of from one from one point of view, Tommen is sitting there thinking, my mother killed my father. So yeah, who betrayed who exactly? From his point of view? You know, he didn't know what was going on back then. Uh, as far as the charges are, this is very important. The incest charge is very is a really important charge to think of. It's not incest with Jamie that she's on trial for. I mean, she is, that charge is out there, but her penance, her walk of penance was for incest with Lancel. The Jamie thing is is funny. This is and this is this goes back to Jamie accusing the High Sparrow of having ambitious motives and not being about justice. Remember, he says, "What about my? What about me? What about my punishment? What 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 do I get? You know, why aren't you coming after me?" That was proof. We we were very sure back then that this is because the High Sparrow is after power. He's ambitious. He's not after justice. His idea of justice is justice that suits his ends. You know, so he that's why he went after Cersei and not Jamie, because Cersei's the queen. Jamie is the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. He doesn't have nearly the political power and influence Cersei has, even though Cersei has lost a lot of her power. Of course, he, she lost even more after taking that walk. So the thing is, the High Sparrow in both book and show has no incentive to prosecute Cersei over the incest charges with Jamie because he's worked all, he's put all this effort into controlling Tommen. He would totally be shooting himself in the foot if he just outs Tommen as the product of incest and not the valid king. That just would be silly. So in the in the book, the High Sparrow says basically the same thing. He says he's totally willing to throw that charge out, even though he's aggressive at pursuing all the other charges on Cersei. And he's able to throw it away like hand wave. He's like, yeah, we believe you. Because this rumor came from Stannis. And Stannis has fallen off of the true faith. He worships R'hllor now, so we can easily throw his words out as the, you know, as the mark of a ambitious, you know, usurper. So, anyway, that was a long spiel there. Let me let you guys get some opinions in there and tell us, uh, it's very complicated, but I think it's important to, to clear up. So, um, let's get you guys' thoughts. Okay. Well, I'm going to go on, go off on another kind of tangent and wonder if uh, we could be seeing the outcome of Marjorie's plans here. I thought it was very interesting that this decree by Tommen could result in removing Cersei from power once and for all. Totally get rid of her, which is what Marjorie wants. Cersei's been her rival since she arrived in King's Landing. They hate each other. Uh, obviously, that's ancient history, but it, uh, it still exists. Could this be what she's been playing at all along? By allowing Tommen to be influenced by the High Sparrow, 
she could actually achieve this. Um, get rid of Cersei, achieve her goals, and then turn on the High Sparrow, which is what we've suspected, by reasserting her influence sexually over Tommen when she, quote, returns to the marriage bed. Um, she could, you know, turn things back around. And it could end up being a very clever plot on her part to kind of come out on top once and for all. The only puzzle is what's going to happen to Loras, because Loras is included in this trial, and it's not really clear the hows, the whys, and metaphors of all that. I would agree that no matter what Marjorie's plan is, it involves Loras. She's thinking about Loras a lot and wants to save him. She seems to genuinely care for him as a family member, as a brother, etc., rather than as an out of just genuine familial duty. Uh, seems to be real, um, not just uh, something that she feels like she has to do. Uh, so yeah, a lot of possibilities there. The political situation is very interesting. I agree with you that Marjorie, you know, it's this is the this is how the Game of Thrones works. It's a lot of times compromising with your worst enemies to get what you need against your even worse enemies. <laughs> like you know, arguably, Marjorie thinks she can handle the High Sparrow in the long run. It's Cersei's influence she needs to get rid of. And all these people are just fighting over Tommen. They're all fighting for control over Tommen. Cersei, the High Sparrow, Marjorie, others, you know, as well. It's not just them, but they're the main ones. So really, really interesting. So Cersei is gutted by this decision to ban trial by combat. And I like your thoughts on that. It could be something Marjorie suggested rather than, you know, it looks like the High Sparrow, but... You know, maybe it was all of them. You know, maybe just maybe, but maybe it was Mar- Marjorie's idea. We did bring up before that how obvious it was that Cersei was overconfident in her ability to say, "Ah, yep, I got the mountain, no problem." We all pointed out, like, look, Cersei, just like he knew you were going to take action against Marjorie's walk, he n- quite well knows who your champion is going to be. This is really he sees that a mile away. Again, she just underestimated him. Just didn't think about changing the law. You know, didn't even see that as a possibility. I mean, I can kind of understand why she didn't come, to, you know, expect a law change. But she had to expect something. She should have anyway. Well, that's not Cersei, though. No, Cersei. Cersei is, <laughs> yeah, Cersei is all about seeing threats where they're not and not seeing the real threats. That is that is the essence of Cersei. She's, that's that's what comes with being paranoid based on a prophecy. You know, it's uh, it's kind of an un uh, it's it's kind of a human thing that we humans on Earth can't really understand because we're not guided by prophecies that seem to be coming true. You know, it's it's really not something we can we can really understand. So let's talk about the old rumor. Kyburn says that he's explored this old rumor she had and check into, and I think we all agree what this old rumor is uh, that it has to do with wildfire. Um, you guys agree with that? Yeah, it seems most likely. It could there could be a curveball, something that we you know you, it's not possible to anticipate. But given what we've got, you would go with wildfire, I think. Yeah, it's even been set up long in advance in books and show in pretty much the exact same way. The book did it, you know, was more thorough as it always is for the most part because it has more space for that. In season three, episode five, kissed by fire. Uh, that's the famous bathtub scene with Jamie and Brienne. And in that scene, Jamie specifically mentions the Great Sept as a place where Ares' pyromancers had placed the substance. And he also mentions the Red Keep and Flea Bottom. Pretty much the same as the book. Details are pretty much the same. And Lady Gwen, there's another detail from earlier in the season that, that ties into this, isn't there? 
Yeah, well, don't forget, we were very pointedly reminded about the wildfire, Ares' plot, as well as, you know, uh, the scene with Tyrion um, in Bran's vision earlier this season. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like a big red flag saying, this is going to be significant, folks. (laughs) Yeah, will she be shouting, burn them all? Just like, well, it would be a bit more feminine, I assume, her voice, but (laughs) it can be very similar. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) Very angry. So, So there's a lot of possibilities there whether Cersei will try to blow up King's Landing, whether she will succeed, whether she will partially succeed, maybe Jamie will stop her. And if she doesn't blow up King's Landing, literally, she could blow things up metaphorically by admitting that Tommen is a bastard. How about that? Wow. You know, she was willing to take Tommen out when she thought Stannis was going to kill them both. Maybe if she sees this as hopeless, that she's just going to take everyone out, you know, if I'm going to die, I'm going to take everyone with me. This would also, because it would be taking out the High Sparrow's power too. He would all of a sudden be, you know, the puppet ruler of a king who's no longer in power. So he would fall with her. It would also damage the Tyrells, who are her enemies, because they no longer are married to the king. And But it would also crush Jamie, and it would crush her. But of course, like I said, she'd only do it if she was truly desperate or thought she was. And if you think this is a little far-fetched, well, remember, she threatened to do this to Tywin's face. And it was the only time Tywin ever really, like, looked scared or confused. He's, like, the only time we saw him kind of speechless. He, he's always just commanding and in charge. But when Cersei threatened that, he didn't have a response. He just stood there, like, ah, and she walked away. You know, it was really powerful. So here's an actual quote from the books that Jamie uh, was telling Brienne. So his grace commanded his alchemist to place caches of wildfire all over King's Landing, beneath Baylor's Sept and the hovels of Flea Bottom, under stables and storehouses, at all seven gates, even in the cellars of the Red Keep itself. So when the show follows pretty much the exact path of the books, and it's been laid out super far in advance, this is one of those times where I think it's pretty clear that they're going to parallel each other pretty closely. Uh, I mean, there could be some major differences in the details. Now, it's been long predicted that Daenerys would be the one to set off the wildfire or to burn King's Landing down in some other way, not necessarily intentionally. But now, so that could still be the way it happens in the books, but it looks more like Cersei's going to be the one to do it in the show. But maybe not. Maybe she gets stopped and it happens later. You know, Daenerys does it by accident later after she's, Cersei is prevented from doing this. Eh, I don't know. It's really hard to say. Now, if, it's, if Cersei does it, it's a really painful thing for Jaime. His reputation was ruined forever because he stopped this 20 years ago. And now his own sister's going to do it again? Oh, my God. That would be insane. If it's Danny, it would be somewhat similar but less emotionally devastating because it's not his own sister doing the thing that he ruined his honor and his reputation for his whole life for doing. Instead of King's Landing being saved from Ares, it's only delayed from Ares' daughter doing it instead. That would be kind of ironic. Yeah. And this is an aside. If Daenerys is responsible by accident, again, think about those rumors about the Blackfish and how his death will look to others from a distance. It will be the same thing here. It won't look like an accident. Here comes the rampaging dragon queen burning down King's Landing. They're not going to be like, oh, it was the hidden wildfire that, that was at fault. No one's going to say that. A few people will, but most people are going to be like, oh, look at her, destructive, burning down King's Landing, like, geez, she's a terrible person. You know, uh, the rumors will look bad, just like how it looks, just like how Arianne thinks 
Danny murdered Quentin and how she arranged for Viserys' death. People will assume the worst, especially about their enemies. So that will not be good for Danny's reputation if that's what happens. But that is really far in the future, I guess. <laughs> Don't think Danny's going to get to Westeros this season. Now, we cover this topic as far as the wildfire plot from the perspective of Ares quite a bit in our Shadow of Summerhall episode. We've been confident this will be this is going to happen in the books for quite a while. Seeing it planned well in advance on the show greatly increases our confidence. Sounds like we're all pretty much in agreement on there. Do you guys have anything more on the wildfire plot? Ares, Cersei parallels. You know, if Cersei burns down the, uh, the Tower of the Hand in the books that with a controlled burn, and that may be where she gets the idea that this can be controlled. Um, yeah, in the books, there's lots of wildfire links to Cersei. You know, I'm sure her eyes are described as wildfire on a, a two or three occasions, and lots of small hints. So, the, the idea that Danny just comes in and and does it, it it's strange because why why are these links with Cersei and wildfire? Um, like you, I think it's going to be some combination of Cersei and Danny and wildfire is going to be the end of King's Landing, but I can't figure it out. It's a bit of a mystery. Yeah, we see the shadow over King's Landing of Janny's dragon in Bran's vision. So if King's Landing, that would imply King's Landing is still there when Danny, when Danny comes on the scene. Yep. So that means Cersei can't just destroy it all. I certainly don't think it's going to be King's Landing completely leveled in episode 10 or anything like it. I really don't see that yet. I think it's way too early. Danny's got to have something to invade. Hmm. So maybe this is our Valonqar moment. Maybe Jamie stops Cersei, has to kill her. He has to, you know, replay the Mad King episode by now instead of killing the king he swore to protect, he has to be a kinslayer. It, it could Poor be, Jamie. but re remember that in the show, there's no Valonqar. They missed that bit out of the prophecy, which yeah, would right. enable, which would enable them to kill Cersei by someone else's hand. That's assuming that the Valonqar is Jamie in the books, but they don't, they're not tied to that in the in the show good point good point yeah so it's really that's that's awesome i like that we don't know what's coming you know a lot of times we're able to predict it and we've been wrong about plenty of predictions this season but when things had you know predicting the obvious is often the correct um thing with the show because it is made for a large audience it's not made for book readers you know we're we make up a light, nice chunk of it and plenty of show watchers have been converted to book readers but it wasn't made for us. It was made for everyone. And that means we get nods to the book sometimes, but we also get, you know, plot lines that are not, that are easier to understand. Not because the average viewer isn't as smart as we are or something like that, but they don't put as much time into it. They watch Game of Thrones. They talk about it on Monday. And then, you know, it, they watch other shows during the week. And it's, it doesn't mean as much to them as it does to us. And, and those people are as much part of the fandom as we are, even though we all spend more time in it. So that's just the reality of TV show. Uh, TV show making so TV TV shows never have as much depth as books and this is you know this is a prime example it, you know even if they had the best writers in the world they could never emulate the depth of the books it's just not not possible in the medium yeah it's not fair to continuously compare the books and show the quality of the books to the quality of the show they don't compare in a lot of ways I mean that's like saying what terrible acting the book has <laughs> 
you know, what what acting, you know? <laughs> you can't even make that comparison because it's like you got to compare the awesomeness of George's prose to the performances of Nikolai Coster-Waldo. And that's just like, how do you even do that? You know, like, what this is awesome mm -hmm. and this is awesome. They're both awesome, but they're awesome in entirely different ways. So, you know, and it's just like George can describe the awesomeness of the wall or the incredibleness of the eerie or the, the awe, the splendor of Casterly Rock. But when we see that stuff on screen, we see ships showing, you know, flinging balls of fire. Like, that's just viscerally awesome. And the books can't do that as much as they can inspire us to think about things in different ways. It's just a totally, totally different medium. And we all really should take that into account when we compare the two. It's kind of unfair sometimes. Sometimes it's very fair because, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be all in one direction here. This is a nuanced uh, debate or not a debate, nuanced point anyway, because we all kind of agree. It's not a debate. Okay, so that's exciting. We don't know what's coming and that's fun. One of the things that's been great about season six for book readers is that we don't know what's coming. A lot of these plots, no idea what's happening. It's full of surprises. Surprises are fun. Uh, I think surprises arguably are a bigger deal in the show than they are in the books because you know, the, the books, we reread them to catch new things and to catch new detail. And when we look into that detail, it rewards us because it all makes sense. Doesn't always work on the show that way. You dig deep in the show's details, sometimes it's just, it's just the way they did it. You know, like this whole Arya thing is a perfect example. We all had a lot of good reasons to think something was up. It didn't turn out to be. And generally, so in other words, it's like looking behind the curtain on the show doesn't always, isn't always as rewarding. But when you look behind the curtains in the books... It's rewarding. You find new things, and those things don't fall apart under the light of scrutiny. So, yeah, anyway, that's my little uh, diatribe about books versus show and how they both have a lot of positives and things that you just can't compare. So, okay, well, let's talk about a few things. As the season gets close to the end, there's a few things that are maybe left dangling, you know, left hanging, things that we might want to see resolved, things that maybe we expect to see resolved. Maybe we think that they won't get resolved. Um, we talked about some small things like the No Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. They just don't seem to care about that. I kind of get that. It's maybe not that important right now. We kind of wanted to see that, but eh. Eh, I guess they have their reasons. It's not super important. Uh, Dorn. You wonder if they're going to see anything more at Dorn, if that's just wrapped for now. If they just tried to keep that as little as possible damage control <laughs> well we did talk about the possibility of varus allying danny with dawn which you know i think would kind of stitch together pretty nicely actually mm. yeah that's a good point yeah I, I agree you wonder if dorn you know dorn in the books doesn't have any sort of navy to speak of but that again we don't have to assume that for the show they haven't said dorn doesn't have ships in the show we do not have to assume that uh, at all that's a, that would be a, this is a perfect example of book knowledge infecting what we believe is possible for dorn uh we should not assume at all that show dorn has shipless like book dorn basically is so that is a totally valid possibility Iron Islands? I don't know how that seems less likely because they're an independent. They're not part of Westeros right now. They're not under the Iron Throne. They're still, you know, Balon's Rebellion, still Euron's Rebellion now, still happening. But it's possible. You know, Varys is maybe not aware of the, all the upheaval that's happened there recently, but he's certainly aware historically that they are a sea power. Uh, so it's got to be a consideration. Any other things you guys might uh, have in mind for things that are missing or... Uh, some of it's hard for us to talk about because of trailer spoilers. So we will uh, 
not go too deep into that, but until after the credits. But yeah, that is a thing. Um, any other? So any other possibilities? I can't think of any. Okay. No, no. A couple things that I think will be resolved. The more bigger things. Yeah. I think okay, so let's do our ratings. Let's do our, our personal ratings for the episode. This was the tied on IMDb. This was tied for the lowest of the season. But that's still an 8.3. An 8.3 episode of television is still very good. You know, that's considering 8.3 is a low point for a TV show, is that's a pretty good low point. That's a very low floor right there. Um, I think I went first last week. I think, Yoke Boy, I think it's your turn to go first. Okay, I'll give this episode a 7.5. All right. Lady Gwen, what about you? What did I give last week? I think... It's much... Definitely higher than I think last you week. gave an 8 or a 7.75. I don't remember. 7.5 or 8, yeah. So I, I'm going to go with uh, 8.5 higher than the IMDb rating because I actually thought this had a lot of good stuff going ahead. Some big disappointments, but... There's a lot of good stuff. In yeah, there. it's 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 hard for me. Like, I want to give the episode a lower rating because of the dis my disappointment with Arya. But it's really kind of like this should be spaced out in retrospect to all my past ratings of episodes that Arya. It's kind of unfair to blame this episode for all you know the whole Arya plotline. You know, just because it's really the whole thing. It's really season five and season six. All of Arya's plotline is really what we're judging now because it's over. Uh, so it's maybe not fair for me to condemn th this episode. <laughs> Just because of a plotline that's been running for two full seasons. So, I, I, But I will give it a 7.75, which is one of my lower ratings of the season. Because that does do... It is hard for me to get past that. But like you said, Lady Gwen, there's a lot of really strong acting moments. A lot of good setup for other things. And a lot of things that we can't predict. Which, again, sets up some fun surprises. And we like being surprised. Can I ask which, which was the other episode in the season that scored... Low. You said it was a, you know, this w was tied as the lowest. Do you remember which? I believe it was episode four. No, not episode four. Episode six. Yeah, episode six, which was more popular with book readers because of uh, the Ares flashback and things like that. But that was not a very popular episode. And episode one, the red woman, that one was also near the bottom. Mm. Yeah, that was pretty. Those weird. are all like those are like eight point three, eight point four territory. And these ratings sometimes change, you know. And the longer, the shorter the episode's been out, the more likely the rating gets to change. So those early season ones are probably settled now. Uh, hold uh, the door is the top episode of the season so far with a nine point seven, which I think is number three all time for Game of Thrones. And then there's a couple other ones above nine, like uh, episode three and episode two, I think. Those were, those were all really popular. If I, remember, I might be remembering some of those wrong. Don't quote me on that. But it's really easy to see. I'm going to go to IMDb. You can click on this episode one of the season. You can easily scroll through them all and see the ratings. It's kind of fun to see what other people think of them. Some ones are surprising. Which ones are most popular? And that's, that's you know, that's a show book dichotomy. You know, sometimes we're, we're disappointed in something because of what we expected. Or our showrunners, you know, our show watchers. For example, Blackfish stuff. Show people. They don't care nearly as much about the Blackfish because he wasn't nearly as important to them. He had a very minor role throughout the show. So, of course, why would they care nearly as much about him? He's just that badass guy that shot the arrow well and talked to Edmure the way he did. That's not necessarily as memorable as... It's definitely not as memorable as all the huge impact Blackfish had as one of Rob's chief outriders and things like that. I mean, he was just a much, much bigger character in the book. It's, it's, it's made out how important he was. So, okay, so let's do 
our credits, and then we will come back to discuss the post-trailer discussion. We've got a lot this time, more than usual, because we've got we're starting to talk about some wrapping the whole season up, talking about the whole season as a whole type stuff. So extra material this time. So if you're cutting out now because you don't want to be spoiled, well, Valar Morgulis, and we'll see you next week. Okay, everybody. Got to do some acknowledgments and thanks. Of course, this show, as I said at the beginning, is a community effort, and a big part of that community is our Patreon supporters. It is the possibly the number one reason that we're able to continue to do this instead of, you know, having to work a, a job 40 hours a week, which would really hinder the ability to make videos. <laughs> so big thanks to First Lord Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers, and the Black Pupil. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge is the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills at Crescent Springs and Warden of the South. Possibly where Danny will be landing. I'm sure she's excited about that. Rory the Rogue, Archer Extraordinaire and King Beyond the Wall. Well, if the Wildlings have him on their side in this upcoming battle, then I definitely f fear for the lives of all the Boltons. Well, not really. I want to see them die. So good, good guy to have on your side in a fight. Rory the Rogue. The Small Council of History of Westeros is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight and Master of Whispers. Lord Grand Maester Seria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws. Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships, and he's thinking to himself, I gotta get my Navy to have some of those sweet catapult fire ships too. Smart thinking, James. We do need some of those in our Navy. Lords and ladies in their castles supporting history of Westeros include Lady Dyerliz of Castle Maki, the Alpha Patron. That means first patron ever. Thanks a lot. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Belt is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Cabethian Frozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Bread Fort and high-level punster, as we saw earlier. Alicia the Everlasting is of the Green Blood and Lady of Desert Rose. Jeffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake. Lord Grey Bay is of the Queen City. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the Norse Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lady Bram is Light of Winter's Garden and Beacon of the Northwest. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lady Cachal Vallant of Swine Harbor, followed by Lord Barone of Hillcrest, Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete, Everglazed. And uh, introducing Lord Alistair Whitaker, Lord of the Dawnhold. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Lord Commander of our King's Guard is... Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear. And last but not least, our History of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Lord Commander George the Golden and backed up by First Ranger Fabian Flowers, Bastard of Green Shield, and First Steward Dolores Roenick Cantrell, the wielder of the Valyrian Steel Spoon, for the night is dark and full of turnips. Indeed it is. So some great names on there, Aziz. You got some <laughs> <right interesting on. laughs> patrons. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to see. Sometimes people have the really awesome suggestions of their own that just make me 
you know, happy or giggle or both. And a lot of times people say, hey, you come up with a name for me and I, I do my best and give suggestions. And then people pick their favorite out of those. And we get to read them aloud sometimes. And that's a lot of fun. So if you want your own title, head over to historyofwesteros.com, click on the Patreon link in the upper right hand corner and check it out. There's a lot of different things to peruse, a lot of different titles, a lot of different rewards and all that. And of course, as I said, it is the main thing keeping the show going. So we do really appreciate all the support at every level. You can also support the show by checking out our Amazon links. You can shop through Amazon through historyofwesteros.com. Anything you buy, even if you don't buy things suggested by our links, anything you buy during that session will be tracked to us and you do not pay an extra dime. It is the same price as if you had gone normally. A good way to support the show for no extra effort or money. Pretty cool. All right, so enough of that. Let us get back to the material. Always important to pay the bills, but that's not why we're here. We got to talk about the material. That's the most fun. So the trailers, there is just a lot of juicy stuff because not only do we have the trailers to think about, we have the preseason trailers, which we can narrow down because any scene that we haven't seen yet, we know it's in episode 10, except for the ones that are uh, based on this battle. There is no indication that this episode coming up next week will have anything in it other than before, during, and after the Battle of the Bastards in the North. 60 minutes of pre-math pre and aftermath and mostly the battle itself. So a lot to think about. The trailers show us 1-1. The trailers show us John are here reveal that John is offering to duel Ramsey or something along the lines of that in order to prevent the death of so many people. I can't imagine Ramsey going for that because he has the bigger army. Uh, no shot of Ghost at all, which might be a good thing. Ghost not being there might bode well for his survival because Man of the Dire World has been dropping like flies. Littlefinger swooping in to save the day. So what is Littlefinger's end goal here? He swoops in to save the day. Then what, what, What's next for him? Uh, he's gonna try to to marry Sansa. Of course, that's his that's his book goal, I believe, and I'm sure that's gonna be what he wants to do here. Uh, icky, yes, <laughs> extremely icky. Um, but I think that's what he wants. Um, and being being Lord of Winterfell sounds like Littlefinger's wet dream, yes. doesn't it? Given the jealousy that he he must have internalized in his youth with Brandon and Ned taking Catelyn. Right. So he's, so that's, you know, in the books and, and in the show, but that's in the show, didn't we have somebody point out that Cersei had promised him the wardenship yep. of the North? And in fact, promised him Sansa yes. too. And maybe, Sansa, not, maybe not promised, yes. but suggested the possibility. I forget exactly yeah. the wording. Right. But yeah, it's kind of, you can, the point it. is it was brought up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> If that's just too bad because Sansa's almost making this more likely by not telling John and others that this is potentially going to happen. There's one shot from the trailers or photo stills of John seeing a whole horde of horsemen come right at him. And it's like he's by himself. And, it, uh, you know, the more obvious conclusion there is, oh, man, it's just like everything collapse and this is John's last stand. I don't think so. I think what he's seeing is the Vale Knights riding in to save the day. He's not aware they're coming, and if you look closely at that shot, you can't see a single banner. Not a single piece of heraldry or, sig or, or uh, sigils, and all the other shots, you can see sigils all over the place. You can tell, like, you can see the Hornwoods, you can see the Mazins, you can see Stark banners, you can see Bolton banners, you can see Umber banners, 
you can see just all the banners that have been mentioned to be part of this battle. You can see them. Ex uh, notably absent from that shot with a whole lot of horsemen. So I think that's a bit of a sneaky trick there. I think that's the, the cavalry, literally, riding in to save the day. I really hope, sorry, I really hope that the Vale Army don't just swoop in, you, you know, exactly the same as Tywin and the Tyrells at Blackwater. I really hope it's more complicated and it's not just, you know, the two forces are kind of at, at odds that more or less destroyed each other and then the Vale Army swoop in and save the day. I, I think that that would be poor and I really hope that, you know, like I said, it's a bit more complicated than that. I hope so too, yeah. So what do you guys think? Will Brienne be part of the Vale Army? Is she going to, on her, you know, traveling on her way back, is she going to encounter them on her way through and, and show up with them? Or will she miss the battle entirely? <laughs> it's a tough uh, call. It is a tough call. I kind of think she might end up tying in with the Brotherhood. Um, oh. Just because, of, you know, of the way her book arc has gone, I wouldn't be surprised if she ends up back with Sandor. <laughs> and yeah, I, you know, I didn't I kill you moment? <laughs> Just like he's had with, uh, with you know, Beric that sort of, I killed you once already. <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't even think about that possibly. I like that a lot. And if, to be clear, guys, there's no shots of Brienne and Podrick involved in this battle at all. Not any, not no hint of it. So that's part of why we're having to guess because it's even possible that's it. We don't see Brienne until next season because she doesn't make it back in time for the battle and she's still traveling, which it brings us to some other questions of who we have and some things that we, like I said a minute ago, things that have been in the trailers that we have yet to see. We know they're not going to be in episode nine, so that must be there in episode 10 or they were, you know, there may be some potential. Some of, things, some of these things are deleted scenes. Uh, for example, do you like games, little man? That line from Ramsey has been lingering over us this whole season. We know it. We almost certainly know it applies to Rickon. So I guess we're getting a little Rickon torture right before the battle. Uh, please no, but I don't see another way to, to to judge it. So yikes. Hopefully he's not one of those bodies on the crosses. Uh, we also have Tyrion saying, you're in the great game now. And the great game is terrifying. I don't think we've heard that line this season. Do you guys think we've heard that line this season? So I guess he's saying that to Danny, maybe, uh, in this in, in episode ten. So hmm. then we have a real puzzling one from Tormund. Tormund says, and this is from that preseason trailer again. I thought he would be the man to lead us in the long night, but I was wrong. That seemed to fit perfectly with John being dead at the beginning of the season, but that line never got read. Maybe it was cut. Maybe it's just a you know a deleted scene. But it, there's a small chance it means John dies in this battle, and his this whole thing bringing him back is just to have is just to fight this battle and then to die again, which seems kind of unlikely. But I guess we got to consider it given this information, right? Yeah. Um, we also have, by the way, that relates to a trailer scene of John telling Melisandre, "If I fall, don't bring me back again." And we see. Speaking of Melisandre, we see Davos looking down at a pile of logs, which we've been waiting for all season. What's that going to do with? It seems to be something to do with Shireen. you guys have any, any more thoughts on that? Or is it just pretty much what we've, we've said in past episodes? No, we've said yeah. it. Uh, one of our watchers called uh, Lady... Sorry, what was it? Was it Lady Storch? Again, it's Lady Storch. Yeah, Lady Storch. Lady Storch. Sorry. Um, bad memory. Um, 
suggested that Davos finds the carved stag by by the pyre and figures out what's happened. So I, I, I still think that's a really great call by Lady Yeah, Storch. and it wouldn't be unlike, say, Danny, the finding Danny's ring in, in the Dothraki Sea. This is following a very straight path from Castle Black to Winterfell, which leads down to King's Road. So it would make sense that they would find the camp. That's not, you know, just a really, that wouldn't be really random. Uh, a couple of the things we have not seen from the trailers that we expect to see in episode 10. Walder, Lord Walder, toasting the Lannisters and Freys in his hall. Celebrating River Run being taken, presumably, but there could be more to it. What else could happen in the scene? In the books, it's been predicted there'll be a Red Wedding 2.0, but I don't know if we can. I don't think we can see that. I don't think we're going to see that here because I can't. There's been no setup for it at all, has there? There's been no setup for Walder Frey getting taken down. I think it's very yeah. I think Arya is our only hope there because the Brotherhood is heading north, and in the show, in the books, they're the ones like involved in this Red Wedding 2.0, and they're not clearly. They're leaving the Riverlands. They are, but didn't wasn't there something said about the Brotherhood? Something yeah. about the phrase raising the know, commoners against so, them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's remote possibility that the Brotherhood sort of they'd have to pass the twins on their way north. They could. That's true. You know, That's true. <laughs> stop off and off just Walder stop Frey off for a bit of mass murder. <laughs> <laughs> just be like, all right, we got that out of the way. Now we can. Head to the Instead real Instead of the Red Wedding, it's the Fred <laughs> Wedding, you know. Fray, Fred. Yeah, that was weak. Okay, I was reaching for that one. Um, okay, so other things that we haven't yet seen. Sons of the Harpy. We At the beginning of the season, we saw the trailer, that same opening scene, uh, opening season trailer showed the Sons of the Harpy standing over a bunch of bodies, leaning down over them, and one of them, like, looks behind. He's like, something's happening behind him. He turns to look behind himself. No idea what's happening. The bodies seem to be, you know, freedmen. There's no soldiers. There's no unsullied in there. So I don't, I don't know what's happening. But it looks like, along the lines of our prediction, that this would involve. This isn't this going to be a naval bombardment? The sons of the harpy elements inside the city are going to rise up again, and do stuff. You know, who knows exactly what. Uh, so will Danny's Kalisar arrive during the season to help out with this? That, of course, would be a huge boost to her military uh, situation. And in fact, he might be saying, well, let's just hold on. Let's just hold out until they get here and we'll be fine. We'll have this massive army that can deal with these guys. We do see a scene of Dothraki charging in the preseason trailers that we have not seen. But it, look, it looks to be sort of a really? deserty. What's that? Yeah, really. I didn't know. Yeah, I really thought it might. It, it was sneaky because it looked like it might have fit in with the whole Danny rah rah. You know, I'm. You know, will you follow me? It could have fit in with that, but I just really don't think so. Like, guy had his lance or spear leveled, and he was kind of charging forward. Uh, so, so I don't think we've seen that. I really don't. So that's that's very interesting. So I guess we will see some Dothraki fighting Sons of the Harpy or something in episode ten. Well, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, we also haven't yet. We have yet to see. A shot of the little birds murdering something. Someone. <laughs> something. <laughs> murdering someone. But something. I maybe. think our top guess is Kevin for obvious reasons, because that's exactly what happens in the book. Pycelle dies in that scene too. Is that gonna also happen? It's uh, very interesting. I wanna know how the hell does how the hell does uh Kyburn get these kids to go from whispering to murdering? You know, that's the big question, which is part of why Boiled sweets. <laughs> PCP put in the sweets, yeah. He's going to drug them with, uh, yeah, all that stuff. and uh, But maybe Var, I don't know, it's this, this small chance that Varys is, comes back and just like, these are my little birds. They're going to do what I say. I have better candy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. 
Uh, okay, so let's talk about who we may, ha may or may not have seen the last of this season. I think Jorah, almost certainly, we're not seeing him again this season. But we, we could maybe get a little tidbit, a little teaser, but I'm guessing no. Hound and the Brotherhood without banners, chance we see them again, but I'm guessing no. Arya, that's a big one. What do you guys think? Are we going to see Arya again? Or is this just maybe just a little thing? Or maybe we're not going to see her again until the beginning of next season? I think as it stands, you know, it's well-ended. So I think it's unnecessary to bring her back, given that, you know, the, t the huge time constraints that they're going to have. I think it's it, she's done and dusted for the season. Okay. You agree, Lady Gwen, or...? Um... I, I can see that point of view for sure, but I have I just think maybe we'll see her in the just a little teaser, huh? <laughs> That'd be yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I sort of yeah. lean that way myself, but I think it's a toss up. Yara and Theon, you know, it's easy to see how they could be shown again, showing up to attack the ships. But we talked about why that might not be till next season. Uh, so there's a that's also kind of a toss up. Uh, Euron as well. I gotta think we gotta see one more scene with Euron. He's just he just hasn't done anything. Um, it's been a while, so I feel like we're gonna see one more scene. Dorne, yeah, that could be wrapped. Now we've got some insight on Dorne outside of trailer spoilers. So if you don't want location and filming spoilers, this would be a good time to drop out because we've got some extra info outside of trailers we've got stuff from interviews and, and that sort of thing so if you don't want to hear this time to drop out but if you do if you want to hear it we've got a bit of a small bit of spoiler here which is that there is a scene with it filmed in probably dorn because it's spain in real life and that's where the dorn scenes were filmed with ilaria and conleth hill which is varus and diana rig which is olena so, whoa, whoa. yeah, so yeah, you didn't know that either, did you? <laughs> Can I just say that that's news to me? And when I was talking about Varys going to Dawn, I honestly had no no clue about it. Uh, yeah, that. good call then. You might be, you're, you're almost certainly right. We could have been saying, if we weren't spoiler conscious, we would be saying, Varys is going to Dawn. <laughs> Definitely, because <laughs> of this information. You know, that's like 99%. But yeah, we can't go spoiling people, mm -hmm. so... Wow, that's pretty cool, though. So we're seeing a confirmation of that. It kind of make, makes a lot of sense. It's been set up. I mean, Alaria's like, no more weak men ruling Dorne. Well, Danny is neither weak nor a man, so that fits in pretty darn well. Uh, now, um, who else have we seen the last of, maybe? Bran. That's a big question. I think no. I think we're going to see, well, maybe not Bran, but we'll see maybe the White Walkers. After all, episode 10 is called The Winds of Winter. How are we going to get an episode called The Winds of Winter where we don't see any White Walkers, any Whites, or Bran? You know, we've got to see some of that, right? Do you guys agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I think we should see some of that. And I'm desperate to see Bran again because RLJ. Yeah. Surely it's yeah. been set up. It's going to, if they drag it out till next season, that is poor form because they've set yeah. it up. Well, and we've just yeah, been they... left hanging. That reminds me. Actually, it's not a. It's just, It's another off um, non-trailer spoiler. It's been revealed by the actor who played Mid Mid Ned, the the, the same Ned actor who was at the Tower of Joy, that he's going to be in episode ten. Now we were fooled by that before. He we knew he was going to be in episode six, and it just turned out to be the same scene in episode three, seen through Brand's vision. So it wasn't actually <laughs> new. So he technically appeared in that episode, but it was the same. I doubt they're going to show us that scene again in episode 10. So it probably is something new. 
So yeah, get excited. Tower of Joy Resolution is coming. Remember, Bran saw a little quick little vision of what was probably Lyanna in her bed of blood. So yeah, that's probably coming. That's very exciting. That would be a very fitting way to cap off the season, to, to close out with Bran, to have him be like the epilogue, where we get the confirmation of R plus L equals J plus we see what the White Walkers are up to at the same time. That's maybe one of the most exciting things I can imagine them ending the season with, you know, the last scene. Uh, other than something like the wall coming down or them actually breaking through, which would still relate to them, you know, that's a bit more specific than, than you know, just generic possibilities for the White Walkers, but... Something's coming. It's exciting. Okay, so how about our worries of the week? Uh, as usual, our worries of the week have to... Oh, wait, one more. There's two... Actually, two more. Sorry. Two more things. Filming location spoilers. We are going to see Sam. We're going to see Sam in episode 10. There is a Sam chatting with Maester uh, filming spoiler that we are aware of. That was not in the trailers, but there is a... So fit. we are going to see... If we don't see Old Town... We don't necessarily have to see Old Town just because of this, because they could just show us inside the Citadel. We don't have to see, like, a whole shot of Old Town. But come on! Come on! Give it to us! Give us Old Town! Do it! Do it! Maybe that's why next season's so expensive, because they push that till next year. That is, by the way, if I wasn't clear before, the reason there's only seven episodes next season is because the price of the show is just skyrocketing out of control. They have dragons and giants and direwolves and ships throwing fire catapults and... It's expensive, folks. Real expensive. And the actor salaries have gone up, too, because he's... Sophie Turner is, in, is a freaking X-Man, and, yeah, all these other characters are showing up in, in big roles and stuff. So, yeah, they're, the characters are getting more expensive, too. It's, it's everything. Yeah, they're a victim of their own success, yes, aren't they? very much so. <laughs> On top of Sam chatting with Maester, we've got a Manderly cast. Manderly was cast, and he hasn't shown up yet. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we only see him on the battlefield or something like that. It's not very satisfying, but that's a reason for optimism. Very much so. Maybe he uh, switches sides in a good way. Maybe he shows up on Ramsey's side and flips. I don't know. Dare I hope for another, you know, great book quote. Dare I hope. <laughs> after after Septon Ray, or whatever he was called, let us down. Dare I hope for a Manderly speech. <laughs> Just come on. Come on. <laughs> okay, so let's let's wrap this episode up with our worries. Uh, I still have Lancel on the list. I'm not like attached to him, so I'm not worried. I just it's more of a prediction of doom. Uh, Tommen and the High Sparrow, maybe they all get blowed up. Uh, which which can include Loras, Marjorie, and Mace Tyrell as well. All those guys are potentially people that could be at the Great Sept or could just get, you know, wildfire gets out of control, more people die, who knows? You can't predict wildfire. <laughs> That's Kevin and Pycelle don't look good, do they? Especially Kevin. Yeah, they, they look real bad. They've both been jawing at Cersei and, and, and shaming her and making her angry, and you don't want to do that. You do not want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't anger the man. Yeah, she is dirty. She plays dirtier than you, Kevin. <laughs> Much dirtier. Uh, Ramsey is more like hope of the week. Uh, so it's really more like who kills him? Okay, guesses. Who's going to kill Ramsey? Assuming he dies. Let's let's assume he dies, which maybe isn't you know set in stone. But so assuming he dies, who kills him? What do you guys think? I'll go with uh, a little-known character called Jon Snow. <laughs> who? Huh. You mean John <laughs> oh, John Stark, John Targaryen, John Waters? <laughs> uh, okay, Lady Gwynn, what about you? 
Well, I would, I would like to see that. Um, I think it would be great if it was his own dogs because I think that's how it's going in the books. Uh, but I'm not sure the show is going to go there. Sander would be very fitting. But let's let's go with John. Okay, cool. So two votes for John. I'm gonna go. I think that's the. I think that's a very fitting and, and not unlikely choice. I'm gonna say Sansa. I'm gonna say she gets. He gets captured, and they. You know what do we do with him? And Sansa executes him herself. That would be pretty sweet. And uh, what's it gonna mean? I don't know. That would mean you know she gets to be true, kind of really be a Stark. You know, passing the sentence, swinging the sword, all that. Uh, by the way, speaking of Littlefinger coming in to save the day, that's another trailer scene we didn't talk about that's been shown, which is that Littlefinger standing in the snow, snowflakes in his hair, which we haven't seen any snowflakes in anyone's hair or any snow other than some snow on the ground, but not much of that even in this battle scenes. So this has the feel of some sort of after the battle epilogue type situation. Littlefinger standing there looking kind of unconfident. And then someone kind of passes in front of the camera that he's watching. And it's, it's got, this could be a trick. Like I thought the Olena scene where she's opening Marjorie's letter had the feel of an action scene. So I was worried about her. That just turned out to be a little bit of subterfuge. So maybe that's all this is. But Littlefinger might be, uh, we talked about how Littlefinger maybe doesn't have a great enough of a role to play when it becomes White Walkers versus humanity. Maybe we're seeing his end here at the end of the season. They, they haven't really killed off a lot of characters this season. No one important has died for the most part. We had Doran and Balon and, Roos died at the beginning of the season. Those are important characters, but we haven't had... No one we're, like, attached to, like, really attached to as far as a central character has died. We might be overdue for that. And if they're not going to kill someone that we love, they could kill somebody major like Littlefinger. You know, I, I don't think Sansa or Jon is going to die. Really, Sansa is even less likely than Jon, I think, at this point. Um, Davos and Melisandre, though. I'm worried about both of them. What is Davos's role going forward? It's 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 always a thing that I lean on when I don't know what a character's arc. It seems like maybe their arc has run its course. I immediately fear for them. And Davos, you know, he could easily stick around for the long haul, but but I could also see him kind of being done. You know, what's his future role? Yeah, Sansa even pointed it out to John. She like this guy is our our number one counselor. Like kind of. He's, he's why? Kind of pointless. Yeah. Why? <laughs> like we know why, but from Santa's point of view, it kind of makes sense. Like this guy was commander to this loser that burned people. <laughs> right. You know, come on. <laughs> I'd certainly be worried for Mel, like we've said many times, if Davos figures out what happens to Shireen. So, I mean, that would give Davos something to do in the episode. But I, I don't want to see Melisandre die. I really like her character. Yeah, <laughs> but, you yeah. know, I hope she gets away with burning Shireen because I don't want to lose her. <laughs> Rickon, obviously, we're still worried about. That's that hasn't really changed. The worry is the same as it was since the moment he was revealed to be in capture in Ramsey's possession. It's been the same level of worry this whole time. I think he will make a nice coat for someone. Oh, or a nice, nice bit of uh, kindling for a burning cross. Mm. Um, also, um, Tormund. Tormund is shown in many battle scenes, and he is. I actually think he's going to be fine. Again, he is the opposite of the victim of his own success, which is that he's the only wildling character that we really have as a, a named person. And I don't think the wildlings arc is done. They're going to be a part of the fighting against the White Walkers. I think they're important to that. So I think Tormund is going to be around. I think he's going to stay. 
You know, it just occurred to me, maybe uh, Tormund was talking about Davos, about I thought he was going to be there to help lead us against the Long Night, and he's thinking of talking about Davos, maybe. Uh, that's a bit of a stretch, but it's possible. Uh, so I think he's safe. One one, on the other hand, is my number one worry because of budget, right? Budget constraints. Yeah. We talk about how that's a big factor. That's a big part of why the direwolves were killed off. A freaking giant. That's expensive. Filming <laughs> giants, right? <laughs> and uh, he's such a big target for the Bolton archers, which were shown a lot in these uh, scenes. So right. I'm uh, worried about one one. And don't forget, Magnemite was killed in the books, and you know, and there's yeah. and there's this whole. Not that we don't still have one one in the books, but there was this whole sort of drama about you know, Egret being sad about the the yeah. giants being killed off, and, and we got the so. Magnemite killed in the show also, but right. it wasn't didn't have the same impact like you're saying because there was no you know grit line, so it might be one one last of the giants. one one appears to be the last of the giants himself now, so they could be they could have just pushed that to this make a lot of sense, be very sad, but. At least it won't catch you off guard if it happens if you're listening right now. Because <laughs> that is my that is my number one prediction, sad prediction. Okay, I think that about does it. Do you guys have any uh, closing statements? Anything I missed? Any other predictions? No, no other predictions. Right on. Okay, well, tell everyone where to find you guys. Radio Westeros is going to be getting back to putting out great book-only content in a matter of weeks here once the show is over. So, I don't know, have you have you guys revealed what your next episode is going to be, or is that something you're going to keep as a surprise? Um, it's going to be on Aegon, but I won't say what specifically, but it's going to be on Aegon the 6th. Ah, very cool, very cool. And we'll get that back is... to that, you know, after show season. We're happy to do these episodes with you guys for show season. It's really good. So if you want to check out a, a book-only podcast, go to RadioWesteros.com or check out our Radio Westeros YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, if you like us, you can always subscribe and go for our back catalogue, see if you like us. Yes, highly recommended. I am not just friends with you guys. I'm a big fan of your show as well, so certainly not just uh, lip service. So, yeah, let's uh, wrap it up, folks. We're going to be back, of course, next week. As I said at the beginning of this episode, we're doing the Q&A on Thursday the 23rd at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go check out the event page. Even if you can't make it, go ahead and post questions. Click on the video player. There's a little Q&A button on the upper right corner of the video player. You can see the questions other people have posted. Upvote them or add your own question. And we will be taking those questions primarily, but we'll also be taking some questions from email. You guys have sent us so many emails. Again, I have to apologize that we don't respond to a very high percentage of emails simply because of the volume of them, but we read them all. We incorporate them into these episodes. Sometimes people get shout outs, especially when your questions and comments are unique. A lot of times several people make the same point, so we can't just give a shout out to you know five different people for asking the same question, even if it's a really good question. But just want to reiterate that we read everything you all send us. We appreciate it and we take it into account as much as possible. So again, Valar Morgullis, Valar Battle of the Bastards, Valar, thanks again, Radio Westeros, and all those things. <laughs> so everybody, adios, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.